0: Today's edition of the DVR podcast is brought to you by the guys from Bird Campbell with offices in Florida and Texas. Founded by a pair of former Duke roommates, Bird Campbell means business. Hey, Duke fans, welcome to episode number 97. I can't believe we're on episode number 97. We're going to have episode number 100 just around the corner. This is the 97th episode of the DBR podcast, the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am hosting this week, and you should know by now who I am, but I'll introduce myself anyway if you're a first-timer here. I am Jason Evans, the old guy in the group, the 50-year-old, and I am joined by a pair of younger compadres for every one of these episodes First in uh, Washington D.C., Donald Wine say hello to the masses.
1: So I guess if we're the three bears, I'm the I'm the I'm the middle bear, the one that Goldilocks is probably not going to sleep in their bed and eat their porridge and stuff because it's going to be too cold. Ah, so we should now
0: go out to Denver to the to the little bear who has the porridge that is just the right temperature and the bed that's just the right size. Sam Klein, how you doing, Listen, Sam? Little
1: bear. I've-
2: Listen, I've, I've, I've hung out with Donald Wine a couple times, and I object to being the little bear. <laughs> I, you know, I, and and I'm, not, I'm not a big guy. Um, but, I'm a big guy. But Donald's, Donald <laughs> is no bigger than I am. So uh, let, <laughs> wait, let's, wait, just, wait. let's just get, get a few things straight.
0: If, if we go by, by weight, by, by how much you weigh... Sam, All right, Matt, this is you are the little bear. You you are right, the little fine. bear. <laughs> yeah, you
1: might have a bill, but you ain't got two. That's fair. All right. I I, I will I
2: will accept this and just know that and and you know what? It, if that's just the way it's gonna be, then I can deal with it. It's fine.
0: So, folks, it's nice that we're laughing and having a good time because, um, the, frankly, what happened to Duke a few days ago is just a little bit depressing. Um, uh, the uh, the completely unfounded and ridiculous expectation that Duke might go undefeated went crashing by the wayside as the Blue Devils played their first road ACC game um, at Boston College, BC, a program that has not been anywhere close to even the middle of the ACC for quite some time. And uh, the young Duke team was shocked, absolutely shocked. 89 to 84, they lost to BC. Uh, there are a million different things that can be said about this game. But um, I-, I will start by mentioning this. Duke had out-rebounded every single opponent this season. And I talked I've talked in this podcast on numerous occasions. My unified theory of Duke basketball this year is rebounding. We kill teams on the boards. And the first time we lose the rebounding battle was to BC. And it also happens to be our first loss. I think it is not a coincidence that Duke fell in the first game that we were out rebounded. Um, And I'm going to hand it over to Sam, first of all. Sam, give me your impressions on this game. Um, And let me ask this question to start with. So with three and a half minutes left in this game, Gary Trent hits a three-pointer to put Duke up four, 79 to 75 were you as sure as i was that that once again we were going to see duke be outplayed all night but come out on the on the right end of the scoreboard or did you think the game was still in doubt
2: i thought that duke was going to win the game from about 10 or 11 minutes left because they were just playing to the same script that they have all year it didn't occur to me that the rebounding troubles and the defensive troubles were things they weren't going to correct. And I think there, are, there, there were a couple things about this game that were different in the, in the second half than in all those previous games against high-quality opponents that, that Duke eventually overcame. Number one, uh, as you mentioned, the most important thing, I think, was the, was the rebounding. Boston College had almost every... For almost every rebounding opportunity, Boston College had at least three guys, and often four, who were under the basket making space and, and getting rebounds. And that's at both ends. Um, we've we've talked in particular about how Duke is so good at the offensive rebounding, about how Carter and Bagley can can go get their misses. They can go get other guys' misses and put them up efficiently. Uh, we've even seen Marquise Bolden do a little bit of that. And there, there was not much of that in this game. I think the other thing is that Duke kind of abandoned the inside offensive presence and took a lot of um, – some good and, and but some really bad three point shots, most of which didn't fall. They they shot a pretty poor percentage from three and and I think we've learned in what one of the key things we've learned about this team, unlike Duke teams of the past, they are not going to get away with with shooting other teams out um, and, and making half of their three pointers in a game to just to just uh, send the game away. They're going to have to put the ball inside and they're going to have to deal with, with um, getting two points on a possession instead of three often, which also leads to the other problem Duke had in this game, which was that they didn't really get to the free throw line. Even when they got the ball inside, um, Duke wasn't able to, to draw fouls. Boston College was much more disciplined than I expected them to be, given the, la- the lack of size and talent relative to, to Duke. So Duke didn't make it to the line at all. And, uh, and couldn't get those free opportunities and, and all those things together contributed to them just never being able to pull away. And I thought they were going to win, um, probably much longer than, than most people did because it was, it it didn't really get until into the final minute where I was like, huh, I guess, I guess they just didn't put all that stuff together in this game. Like they, like they have in the, in, in all those other games.
0: I am so glad you mentioned the free throw shooting. Um, there are several stats that jump out from this game that I was just like, "Yeah, sorry, wow. I didn't, I didn't, I, I,
2: I failed to pull them up ahead of time, and now I don't want to, I don't want to oh. make all the clicking sounds required." Can but, you tell me how many how many free throws Duke took in this game?
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. So in this game, Duke attempted twelve, uh, sorry, thirteen free throws, thirteen, and, and we made twelve of them. But, but to me, the stat I was going to say that jumps out. So I, with this game, looking at it statistically, I, I, I really dug deep on like i didn't look at a surface thing like oh we had 13 free throw attempts i'm going to give you an even better stat than that you ready yeah
2: yeah I, I because because the free throw shooting i i mentioned it last because i think it's the it's the most like out other than the rebounding i think that the free throw shooting is is actually the most out of character thing for this team because because they the ball inside so much and it, it, it's the it's the guards it's like duval gets fouled Allen gets fouled all the time. And then the big guys get fouled all the time because they're going up for rebounds so strong and and other teams just like don't have a have a choice usually but to foul them. So tell me about the free throw shooting.
0: So the free throw shooting stat that I wanted to point out was this one. Bagley, Carter, Delorier, and Bolden are big men, our four big men who everyone seems to agree are, you know, is the best front line in college basketball. They combine to shoot two free throws in the entire game. That's like, that's, that's an absolutely crazy stat that our big men shot a total of two free throws in the entire game. The refs swallowed their whistles. They let BC push us around a lot. And that's fine if we learn how to push back. And, and we didn't push back. We didn't push back at all. Um, Donald, I want to come to you. And I'm going to come to you with a question. Uh, and I'm going to give you some stats. And I want you to tell me what you think about these stats. So I was looking at what we did in the second half in terms of offense. Um, In the second half, Marvin Bagley took a total of four shots. Three of them were three-pointers. He took one two-point shot. It was a shot he took in the lane. Wendell Carter took two shots in the entire second half. Javin Delorier took one shot. Marquise Bolden, zero. So Bagley, four. Carter, two. That's a total of six. Delorier, one. That's seven. Bolden, zero. So our big men... A total of seven shots in the half, and by the way, three of those are three-pointers taken by Marvin Bagley. Grayson Allen took 11 shots. Trevon Duval took seven shots. Gary Trent took seven shots. Trevon Duval had as many shots in the second half as all of our big men combined. Donald, was this a case of Duke taking what BC gave them and failing at it, or was this a case of Duke panicking, or was this a case of Duke just really executing poorly and deciding we're going to shoot from the outside and we don't care about going inside.
1: I think we abandoned, you know, what has worked so well for us this year. And I think in part it's because of how well BC shot from beyond three, like, I mean, hats off to them. You know, we were eight for 30 from three point range and BC was 15 for 26. That's, you know, if you think about the plus minus, that's plus 21 points for BC right there. That's, you know, if you're looking at the rest of the stats, you know, you can t- nitpick on some of these other stats. That's your ball game right there. But what I, what I didn't get the sense of, I didn't think we were panicking out there. I think we were just making, abandoning our the game that has gotten us to this point so far. And that is, you know, getting the ball inside to our big men. Uh, we, we took a lot of threes. We took a lot of long jumpers. Uh, We settled, uh, and it's not a—it's not necessarily a bad thing that Grayson Allen has taken a lot of shots, that Gary Trent's taken a lot of shots. But I feel like the the opportunities um, that were presenting themselves, they weren't the best shots that we had uh, on those uh, possessions. One thing I want to talk about, you know, if you're looking at the stats, we had 10 steals, we outscored them in the paint, 46 to 24. That's with the second half. We beat them in points off of turnovers. We beat them in second-chance points. We beat them in fast-break points, and our bench outscored theirs. If you look at this stat line, if you look at this box score, you're probably thinking, how the hell did Duke lose this game? And it's, it's weird because I think just the momentum that Boston College had from shooting the lights out basically the entire game is really what carried them. You know, Kai Bowman, Jerome Robinson, and Jordan Chapman made 26 of their 31 field goals. They're the only players in double figures for BC, and they literally seemed like they were hitting everything. Whenever we would creep back into the game or take the lead, one of those guys would make a couple shots and the lead was gone or, or the momentum was gone. It's really interesting how in this first half, you know we were hanging with them despite the shooting. In the second half, I thought we were doing just that, but somehow in the end, it just didn't work out. Um, and I think that's probably credit to how those three guys played. They played out of their minds together. If you know one of them has an off game, BC loses this ball game, and we're and we're still undefeated. But uh, you have to give them credit for how they played. I'll give you one final stat that I read the uh, this morning on ESPN uh, about this game, and it was about our perimeter defense. And prior to this year, uh, in 16 seasons in 572 games, we had allowed one team to make more than 11 threes in, in a game. This year, Boston College became the third team to hit more than 11 threes in a game against us. And I wonder if that is what's, uh, what's really missing from our defense. I, I think our inside interior defense has been pretty good. Uh, and We've played a lot, of guy, a lot of teams that have good big men uh, or play well inside. But our, out, or, or, our perimeter defense has just been kind of lacking. Um, and, they, and we allow teams to stay in the game or take over the game because of the fact that they can hit from three. And so I think that's kind of where, in my opinion, that's where we faltered. When they started hitting threes, we we tried to match fire with fire and we got burned. I'm so glad you brought up that stat by John Gassaway about
0: how rare it is for Duke to give up 11 or more three-point uh, three baskets in a game. He, he was actually wrong. It, it uh, because, so I'm going to tell you guys what I did today. I went back through the Go Duke get database and I looked every single game. Now you can obviously scroll through them pretty quickly. They'll, they'll do entire seasons. So it's not like I spent hours on this. I looked at every single game Duke has played to find the last time a team hit 15 three pointers against us. And I'm scrolling back. And I'm scrolling back. And, and, and I'm also looking for teams where they get, you know, more than 11, more than 12, because it's, it's really unusual. I mean, last year, the entire season, there wasn't a single team that hit 10 three-pointers against Duke. Not a single one. And as John, as John Gassaway and as Donald Wine just pointed out, this year we've already had Alon hit 14, Portland State hit 12, San Diego State had 10, and B.C. had 15 Fifteen threes. So I'm going back and I'm looking for teams that come close to that. On November 14th of 2015, two seasons ago, Bryant, Bryant hit 13 threes. On February 25th of 2015, Virginia Tech in that overtime game. You guys remember the Virginia Tech overtime game in 2015? Yeah. Virginia Tech hit 12 threes. So I'm looking, you know, and I'm going back year after year. And I'm, most years, no one's even hitting 10. I go back, I get to 1997 and Arizona, we played Arizona and we gave up 10 threes. It was the first time in like five years we'd given up 10 threes in a, in a, in a game that year. And, and I keep going back. And finally, I found the game. I found the last time Duke gave up 15 three-pointers in one game. March 10th of 1995. Gentlemen, the 1995 season Absolutely legendary. It's the worst season Duke has had since Coach K established himself at at Duke. It's the year he had his bad back and he was out for most of the year. Duke went 13-18, and and 2-14 in the ACC. And the final game of that season, the ACC tournament game that Duke played against Wake Forest, Wake hit 16 three-pointers in that game to end Duke's season. Randolph Childress was 8-for-12 all by himself on three-pointers. That's the last time the Duke gave up this many three pointers in a game. I'm going to repeat that for folks who didn't get it the first time. March 10th of 1995. Sam, were you alive then? You were alive then, right? I,
2: I was alive. I was in first grade, so it's been a while. That's. I mean, <laughs> you. You. Uh, I don't know how many people you're going to impress with. Uh, with with that stat, but you can you can put it to. Uh, what what does the 2017 Duke team have in common with the 1995 Duke team that that or 2018 with 1995 that nobody in between has in common with them? And uh, it it might take people a minute to to find that connection because yeah, I, I even though I I don't remember watching that team, I know from reading about it that 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 season was just all kinds of wrong and 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 that um you know in the duke teams of my memory the worst duke seasons that we've had probably the worst one that i that i vividly remember is 2007 um, when duke was a six seed and lost to vcu in the tournament and uh and that's nowhere near as bad as 95 was
0: so the the big question at this point gentlemen um is this bc game an outlier or is it a harbinger of the way that duke may be in trouble this year. The, 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 the theory that ESPN has, you know, and this, you know, all this started um, from Donald started this conversation about three pointers um, because he saw this ESPN article, this ESPN tweet, but also the article that goes with it about the fact that Duke is allowing three pointers this year at a rate we never have before. I mean, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, yeah, I mean, BC hit 15, which is like a crazy, crazy number, but, Elan had 14, Portland State had 12, San Diego had 10. I mean, Duke is giving up threes in a way we haven't in the past. Three is worth more than two. Is this the formula for beating Duke? And it, was this BC game an aberration? Or Sam, I'll ask you, do you think we may see a lot more of this?
2: I'll give you the optimistic take, which is that certainly teams will try. I think that the lack of practice time that the team has probably had for the for this first month plus of the season, has contributed to them not really being able to make adjustments. Right, we haven't seen the team. I mean, other than other than the wrinkles with the zone defense, we haven't seen interesting different offensive sets. We haven't seen uh, we haven't really seen the team change yet. With all the time they have off now for finals, and then and then around the Christmas break, they are going to have opportunities to change that. And I think that the you know, the, I'm sure that the coaching staff sees as much about those the, the three point defense as we do, if not a, certainly a lot more. I think that that will be a focus as they as they look forward and that the the defense will improve specifically on the three point line because Duke has been actually in years past pretty good at that and and even if they don't shore up everything about the defense, even if they don't Establish a, a good defensive rhythm all over the court. I do think that we're going to see them improve from the three-point line because it's an easy thing to kind of emphasize. So uh, I I will say teams will try it. Teams will make a lot of threes against us probably, but we won't see another team make 15. And and at least this team will get better at defending it. So it'll you know maybe maybe teams will make seven or eight threes against us, but it's because it's it's their only game plan and they don't have an inside presence.
0: Donald, I will give you the final word on the um frustrating loss to b c um uh, talk to me a little bit more uh, what do you think about the perimeter defense is is this the biggest problem we have
1: i think it is and and the the real reason is it, but it's also something that that can be easily fixed we have you know at oh, good. Point, I'll, we'll
0: wait. I'll tell Coach. You're going give
1: Coach K. Listen up, Donald's got an easy <laughs> <thing> for you.
0: <laughs> well,
1: we. I mean, we have seven days before the next game, uh, which is Evansville, and then we'll have after that a ten day break before we get into ACC season uh, again uh, against Florida State. But w- what I think is an, you know, I won't say an easy fix. I'll say a fix is you know pressuring the the guards more on the perimeter and not allowing these three point shots. In previous years. When we do that, we did that very well. But what our drawback was is that we weren't good at uh, stopping dribble penetration and stopping in our, our, you know, guys on the inside in the paint. This year, I think that's our strength, is that we can stop dribble penetration. We have a lot of guys in the, in the post that can wrap up anything inside, and our interior defense has been pretty good so far this year. And especially since we can throw all these guys uh, at big men that they, that they won't get rest. So I, I think a point of emphasis would be to you know, get out more on the guards and pressure them a little bit more. The, the drawback is that you will give up some dribble drive penetration, but I think that plays right into the heart of, of the bread and butter of our defense, and I think when we do that, we may see a lot more, especially in previous years. In previous years, we were able to shoot threes very well, And so teams would try to match us and they just couldn't do it. Now it seems like it's kind of reverse, you know, yesterday uh, on on Saturday, they hit 15 threes. And normally that's something that we would do. We can hit 14, 15 threes in previous years. No problem. This year, there's going to be more of a stretch. Uh, and so I think that we can, you know, if we can get more people to be inside the post, we're going to win that battle every single time, uh, in the paint. I think our guys are more than capable of doing that. And I think coach K is probably, uh, working on the perimeter defense to kind of slow down uh, these three-point shots because that's what's keeping these guys in ball games. Okay,
0: folks, a special treat for you now. Uh, Sam sat down uh, just a short time ago with the brand-new beat writer for the uh, News & Observer covering – all Duke sports, but mostly covering Duke basketball. Jonathan Alexander is his name. And we want to give you now Sam's conversation with Jonathan Alexander, the guy covering Duke basketball.
2: All right. We are joined now by Jonathan Alexander. He is the, uh, I, I would still say, brand new beat reporter for the News and Observer covering Duke athletics. Is that,
3: is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. All right.
2: Uh, thank you for joining us. Um your first time here on the Duke Basketball Report Podcast. Uh, how long have you been in the in the job
3: now? Uh thanks for first of all, thanks for having me. Uh yeah. I've been in the job um since the kind of since the beginning of basketball season. Um, but uh officially it was December first. Uh that was the official date. But I've been I've been covering since the very beginning, since the the blue and white game.
2: Okay. Um and and where were you before you had this current role at the News and Observer? Were you covering sports elsewhere? Were you, were you in the Triangle? Were you somewhere else?
3: Uh, uh, prior to uh, covering Duke, I was covering recruiting for the News and Observer uh, for about a year. And uh, prior to that, for three years before that, um, I had been covering news, um, kind of town government, uh, crime. Um, In schools, so I've I've done a little bit of everything so far.
2: Were you Were you trying to get on the sports beat when you were when you were over on the news side, or this is just kind of what happened?
3: Yeah, I I I always wanted to to get into sports, and ever since I started at the News and Observer, um, while I was doing the news beat, I was still freelancing for. It's kind of weird. I was I was freelancing, kind of getting kind of like a separate paycheck. Uh, In sports than my regular job. So I was getting a little extra money doing stories on the side So I've been I've been doing sports stories since I started at the News and Observer And and that was all always a goal of mine to be um, a beat reporter and uh, I finally was able to kind of achieve that
2: There you go and and covering at least in, in our opinion the the most interesting program to be to be following around right? (laughs)
3: <laughs> definitely definitely a very interesting program high profile program um, definitely very interesting
2: are you are you from the the research triangle area
3: uh originally i am uh from charlotte north carolina but i went to school down here i went to uh north carolina central university and um so that is in durham uh for those who don't know and uh after I graduated school, um, got a job with the News and Observer, so I stayed in the area. I haven't left since college. So,
2: so you are. Was, yeah. So so mm-hmm. from your upbringing, I would say you're you're probably intimately familiar with ACC basketball even before you were you were on this job or on this beat.
3: Yes, very very familiar with 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 ACC basketball. Um, family members who. Uh, you know, loved uh, college basketball, so I, you know, I, I, I watched college basketball. I, I never really took to a fan base um, um, because my dad never really took to a fan base. He went to North Carolina Central as well. So while while I wasn't in, while I wasn't in the rivalry as far as picking a team, um, you know, I, I watched it from the outside, and, and so I'm very familiar with with the ACC basketball culture.
2: So if we asked you say five years ago, 10 years ago, what are your, impre- your general impressions of Duke basketball? What do you think about the program? What do you, what would you have said kind of before you were, um, before you were covering them? Um, I guess first as a, as a recruiting reporter and now as the, as the
3: main beat guy? Um, I guess I would probably say elite program. One of the best, when you think of top college basketball programs, you think of, of course, your blue bloods uh, and Duke is one of them. Uh, Duke UNC, kansas kentucky they're among the best so that's that's i always you know thought that they were one of the best college basketball programs in the country so you can't have anything but respect for that and what duke has been able to accomplish over the years
2: and i guess now looking at the at the current team um so we've seen at at this point in the season they've they've kind of finished up most of the non-conference schedule certainly all the parts of it i think that that looking ahead at the season looked the most interesting, right? The, the games in Portland and then um, at Indiana, uh, Michigan State, the, all those games are now kind of behind us. We have a good, good kind of sample of, of what we're going to see from this team this year. Is there anything so far that has particularly surprised you? I know that coming in, um, you know, we expected to see a lot of Marvin Bagley. If you were covering recruiting, I'm sure that you had seen or, and, and written plenty about him. Um, was there mm-hmm. anything about this team that you've seen so far that is surprising um, relative to expectations?
3: Um, I, I am definitely surprised at, at how talented the freshmen are. I don't, I don't know that I expected um, Wendell Carter to be as good offensively as he can be. Um, he gets fouled out a lot, so he doesn't get to showcase that all the time. Or he gets in foul trouble a lot, so he doesn't get to showcase that all the time. But uh, I think it surprised me how many weapons um, they had and how fast they were able to kind of translate that into success. Um, I know they were picked number one, but, you know, oftentimes it takes a while for for young teams to uh, get adjusted, and it seemed that, you know, they had it clicking uh, from the very start, but that's because they have some really talented freshmen who can score. I think they have all five of their starters average 12 or more points per game. So – uh, that was what really surprised me uh, in particular about this Duke team.
2: And what about the uh, kind of the up and down performance on defense? Did you see that happening? Do you think that, um, did you see as them playing as much zone and, and, and mixing up the defensive game plan kind of as much as, as they have?
3: Um, I, I didn't see it, but uh, I guess it doesn't really surprise me when you have, we you have young players uh, who are coming in and, and probably playing uh, man-to-man defense for the first times in their careers. I mean, typically in the past, great Duke defensive teams have had, uh, you know, multiple upperclassmen who could play that lockdown defense. And, and now you have a team that's full of freshmen uh, who are just learning how to play uh, man-to-man defense. So I, it's not surprising to me. Um, that they have struggled and they have been up and down, but um, I don't know that I initially expected them to be up and down. Definitely not, um, you know, being that that Duke has typically been a good defensive team. But it makes sense to me.
2: Do you do you think that the that the defense is the is going to be the focus of all the off time they have? I mean, they have a lot of time to practice now before they get into the meat of conference play. Do you think that that the defensive rotation is? is the most pressing need for this team, or, or what else do you see them working on, and what do you think we're going to see improve as we get into January?
3: Um, I definitely think defense is what they're going to focus on. Um, I think it was before the either before the St. Francis game or before the South Dakota game. Um, they had uh, a day to practice and a day of travel, and they worked on defense, and that was a focus. And they only had a day to work on it. And uh, they knew that they were struggling at that point, point. they knew that that's what they wanted to work on at that point. So uh, I'm, I definitely feel that they'll probably be working on defense this break, um, and they definitely need it. And you can kind of see in the games, um, you know, they have defensive breakdowns, miscommunication. Some, when somebody sets a screen, two people will follow that man, and then there's a guy, like, wide open for seconds. And sometimes it takes the opposing team to find that player, but eventually they'll find that player. So they have a lot of communication breakdowns uh, on their defense. So that's the most pressing issue. And Duke wants to be a good defensive team, so I don't see why they wouldn't work on defense and why they wouldn't focus. I mean, the offense is, is, is great. Uh, I think – I don't know if they still rank number one according to Kim Palmer's offensive efficiency, but I know prior to his last game they were ranked number one. Yeah, so defense is and- and-
2: and if they're not number one now that they're they're certainly going to hover around there for the rest of the season, yes, yeah. I mean we'd we'd see all the different ways they can score. Do you think that um do you think that the shooting's going to improve, or is this something they're just going to have to deal with for the rest of the season with not being able to rely on the outside shot the way that Duke teams in the past have been able to
3: Well, I think they'll they'll continue to pound the ball inside, they know that's where they get their success offensively. Um, but it seems like Gary Trent Jr. right now um, is, is coming out of his shooting slump. The past two games he's shot, um, he, I think, 45% or better. Um, and um, and he's, uh, he's done good after struggling terribly. Uh, I think overall he's like 38% from the floor. But uh, he's done pretty good these last two games. You know, when, when, when Gary starts hitting that shot, you know, he starts knocking him down. He gets confident. And, yeah, Grayson Allen. Grayson Allen is going to one game hit a whole bunch of threes and and, and another game's going to be off, but it's going to be rare off days. And I, I think those are the only two outside shooters they really have, And um, but I think they're going to be focusing on pounding that ball inside and then kicking it out if they have to. Um, so yeah, the shooting will get better. They'll have the ups and downs. Do
2: you, do you think then that Trent is probably, among all the guys who are getting regular minutes, that Trent's the one who's – role you could see increasing a lot um as they get into conference play just just because he he could come out of that slump or is there somebody else you think who has more untapped potential i mean it, you know the team is mostly young guys is there somebody who who you think has a lot to contribute this season specifically that we haven't seen yet
3: well well you know gary he, yeah i do think that once he comes out of that I mean, if he continues to to stay high uh he could be a huge contributing factor for Duke, as you've seen, I'm sure y'all have watched every game. He's in almost every game. He's knocked down a huge shot to help if if they were down uh, to help win. Um, he not he even knocked down some shots against uh, Boston College that I thought were going to give Duke the win. Um, but um, he knocked down a shot against Michigan State. Uh, I think he hit free throws against Texas um, and uh, Florida. He knocked down some free throws. Or it was a layup against Texas. But, uh, you know, he's, he's a big-time performer. His, I think his role will stay what it is. Um, and uh, But I think uh, somebody like Wendell Carter, having him in the game um, with Marvin Bagley is, is, is so crucial uh, to Duke. And he has a tendency to foul out. And if they could just keep him out of foul trouble, having him and Marvin Bagley, two 6'10 guys, who uh, are very skilled uh, under the basket. Having two guys um, down there would just, you know, Duke could dominate if they could just keep both of them in the game.
2: Pivoting a little bit to to Bagley and maybe Carter to a lesser lesser extent. Did you did you think that Marvin Bagley was going to be this productive this quickly? I don't know how much you got to see him in high school. I know that he was out out west, but I'm sure that he I'm sure that he played here plenty as a as a high school student, just in uh, like in AAU events and stuff like that. Did you see his emergence being so quick and, and him being so dominant?
3: Well, I, I was only on the recruiting beat for a year. So in that year that I was on it, I didn't see him play in person. Um, but I did see him play on TV a couple of times. And one was, one was in the Drew league and, and, and the other was his high school. That uh, was, uh, I think the playoffs in uh for Sierra Canyon and uh he was good uh, but um I, I didn't know he'd be dominating college basketball players I, I don't know that I expected it i I'm, I knew he was number one uh when he reclassified so I know he was going to be one of the best but uh when he gets down in that post he's he's you know nobody can really stop him when he gets close um so I, I did not see that I don't know that anybody really expected him to be this good is there, um, you know, is, that one-
2: is there a part of his, is there a part of his game that you think is like most impressive for somebody who's so young and, and also still adjusting to college basketball?
3: I mean, his ability to, uh, get up and off, get up off the, get off the floor. Um, he has, a, he'll, he'll miss a shot and then he'll get up so quick and, and put it back in. I don't think I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody have be able to do that. Um, you know, he can get off to the floor twice before somebody get you know, jumps back down. Um, just his ability to grab offensive rebounds and, 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 and put the ball in uh, when he gets down close is, is, is what separates him um, from other people.
2: And then um, kind of pulling back a little bit, talking sort of more about the program in general. Is there anything about being around the Duke program so much now that, that surprises you from, um, or, or that you didn't expect from, you know, I mean, you, like you said, you've been in the triangle for a while. You, you grew up in North Carolina. You're certainly familiar with, with ACC basketball and all these different programs. Is there anything about being around, uh, the Duke players or, or the Duke coaches? I mean, um, you know, seeing that, that, that whole coaching staff all the time, is there anything about them that surprises you or that kind of changes your, your perception of, of how they operate or, or, or interact with, with you or, or with fans? Uh,
3: not, not too much, because I've been around the program some with recruiting. I, I guess one thing that uh, I guess did surprise me was that uh, Coach K is kind of funny. Uh, he's he's kind of a funny guy. Uh, he jokes a- often, except when they're losing. Um, Which they but, have uh, done
2: now once, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he didn't joke too much last game, um, but but I guess really uh, I really wasn't surprised by anything because I've been I've been around the program uh, when I was covering recruiting I go to Duke games, NC State games, UNC games, so I kind of knew how it operate. I kind of knew how it was, um, but uh, I, I didn't really. I guess I never really paid attention to Coach K's humor, and he's a funny guy. Do you have a good
2: example from from I don't know from a press conference or anything like that?
3: Hmm. Oh, okay. So, so it was it was one press conference. Uh, I think it was like the blue and white game, or maybe it was before that. And um, so, I think oh, someone had asked a question about um, you know them being voted number one in the coaches poll, and Coach K was saying something along the lines of you know those things don't really mean anything in the preseason because, you know, teams really haven't seen you play. And then he used some kind of analogy. Coach K's good with the analogies. He, he remind, you know, him and, uh, and Lavelle Monin or Carolina Central are the best with analogies. Um, but he used some kind of analogy that, you know, that's he said that just would be like me having like a handsome contest of the people in this room and me judging you all. I mean, a pers- you know, a personality contest and me judging you all without even, you know, meeting you all. And then he said, um, you know, I know he was saying that maybe a couple of people in here are handsome. And um, I kind of uh, pointed, I kind of jokingly pointed to myself. And then he looked at me and he was, and this, we hadn't even met yet. And he was like, yeah, you'd be up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect him to say that, but that was kind of funny. It, thing. If, if, if a 60 year old
2: man gives you a, tells you that, that you're good looking, you know, you got to, you got to take it. Right. He's successful. Yeah. I,
3: I, yeah. I was, I was, I was very uh, uh, flattered. Uh, by it, so. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was, that, that was funny. Sounds good.
2: Um, I'll ask you one more um, and then, then we'll kind of wrap up. Are there, have you had any personal interaction with any of the, with any of the current players and any, um, any guys in particular that are easy to talk to or that kind of give you interesting quotes or is it, or is it mostly pretty generic?
3: Hmm. Good quotes. Uh, Grayson Allen, you know, he's been around, so he'll, he'll give you a good quote. All the guys that I've talked to really have, have good personalities. Uh, Trayvon Duvall, Gay Trent Jr., Marvin Bagley. Those are the guys, and, and Grayson are the guys who I've talked to most, and, and all of them have good personalities. All of them are really good, good kids. Uh, I, I've been around kids who, who didn't really like to talk to to the media and you could tell, and you can't really tell with these guys, they either fake it really good or, or they're pretty good with the media. Um, I mean, it, it's um, probably
2: hard to fake it when you're 18 years old. Uh, yeah,
3: that's true. That's true. And, and, and you know, these guys are the best, in, they've been the best in the country. So they probably dealt with a lot of media. So that might be why they're good. And, they, and they're genuinely, I can tell by those, particular guys those particular freshmen and Wendell Carter I forgot to mention him they, they seem like genuine you know good guys um you know you, you can kind of tell when some people are so all, all of them have, are interesting personalities Grayson will probably give you the best quote um nobody really jumps at, out jumps out at you um and I know you guys are Duke fans but um the only Probably the only athlete who probably used to give me some really good quotes was was Kennedy Meeks, um, uh last year for UNC. And uh, well, but we, most most we, kids we, don't. We, really...
2: I think we can accept it, even if even if he wasn't our favorite. Player. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to think that I'd like to think that we're all basketball fans, you know, in general. In addition to just being Duke fans, and and you know, the the three of us certainly watch a lot of ACC basketball outside of watching just Duke games. So, so we, you know, we're, we're familiar with those guys, even if they're not, even if they're not our guys.
3: Definitely. 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 I hear you on that.
2: That's uh, I think that that's all I had for you. Um, Thank you again for, uh, for joining us and kind of giving your impressions of the program. Um, uh, Excited to have you on the beat here and and to follow your work. So um, Jonathan Alexander, you're, you're at the news and observer Uh, folks, I guess can pick up, the hard copy of the paper. If they, if they live in the triangle, they can um, read your work online. Um, uh, and you're on Twitter, right?
3: Yep. Yeah, I'm on Twitter, J O N M Alexander. Uh, or you can just type in Jonathan M Alexander and Twitter and fine. All right. It. But, um, All right. thank you very much for having me on. It was a pleasure.
2: Excellent. Um hopefully we will uh, we'll talk to you again sometime, maybe maybe towards the end of the season or next year. So uh, once again, thanks to Jonathan Alexander from The News and Observer for joining us on uh, on this edition of the show. and uh, we'll we'll talk to you again sometime down the road.
3: Thanks a lot. Anytime.
0: Sam, great job on that interview. I know Jonathan's only been on the job for a short period of time, but uh, it was a, a lot of fun to talk to him and hear his impressions. I I adored um, him saying that the most surprising thing was Coach K's hu- sense of humor. I think that's, that's great to know. I mean, you get this impression when you watch games that Coach K is this incredibly stoic and serious and... Focused guy, and he has to be really focused during games, but it's kind of nice to hear that at the press conferences and you know sort of uh, uh when when he doesn't have to be with the camera shining on him he's he's much more relaxed and having fun and I think that that to me that was the the thing I took away from the interview um uh, Sam, let me ask you i mean you're the guy who did the interview what was your favorite part of it
2: i I think that that was it i i really man I really wanted him to, to to you know, when he said that he grew up in North Carolina in Charlotte. I was very much hoping that he was going to have some a c c basketball story to tell. Um, but I guess if he's a if his dad was an n c central guy and he's an n c central guy, it sounds like he was a neutral party to to all the a c c partisanship that he probably grew up around um, so I would say the one thing he, he that he left me hanging on was that he didn't have a sort of a better like childhood ACC basketball moment, but yeah, I agree with you. I think that the the humor thing was good, and I also liked his impression of how um, kind of kind of how easygoing the the freshmen are when it comes to the media. Because as he said, you know they they are all talented guys who have been around like the AAU circuit. They've probably dealt with the media all of them for a few years before coming to school. But just the way that they're all grounded and 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 able to to communicate with adults so often uh, is really impressive to me. And and something that I, I think I, I had picked up on myself from watching the games, but it's not something you can necessarily tell um, unless you you're seeing them really on a regular basis, the way that say a beat reporter would.
0: Donald, what about
1: you? What was your takeaway from the interview? Well, I like that he has a, a unique perspective on, on Duke and basically on the ACC. You know, he is one of the rarities. He's a a guy who grew up in North Carolina uh, that does not have a real sound, like a real big investment in any one of the the Tobacco Road teams. He went to NC Central. You know, let me me ask you, uh, uh, do you think, if you were
0: the News and Observer, could you possibly put an NC State or a North Carolina fan on the Blue Devil beat? Could you put a Duke fan on the Blue Devil beat? Like, I would be the wrong guy to cover Duke. I couldn't do it journalistically. I'm sure that it's the same for you guys. I mean,
2: I mean, I, um, I, I, know that most of the, or not most, but I know that a lot of the local media in around the triangle are North Carolina people mm-hmm. and that they, I know that there's a lot of NC state alumni who are, who are like the local sports media. We're, we, we don't count, right? Because we're not, we're not sort of the yeah. the traditional, we're not like on radio or, or writing newspaper columns or anything like that. But I think a lot of the folks are from around there because it does come out sometimes, and it, honestly, I think it as long as you have kind of enough of the journalistic distance to separate yourself, then it it probably makes you better because you have and, and, and Jonathan has it, I, I would imagine, even though he doesn't have a team, you know, an ACC team that he rooted for growing up, at least he has kind of the perspective on like how nuts the ACC basketball life is and, and how seriously so many people take it and, and how far back all their memories go. Because, you know, we, we talk about, about Duke games. Like I talk about Duke games with you guys that I never saw and, and Duke teams and players that I never saw. And it just, it seems so ingrained in me. Like I've always been an ACC basketball fan. So I always, I always rooted for Duke and and read about Duke. And so we can, we can have conversations about like, you know, Jason, like I, I can talk to you about the 1986 championship game, even though even though it happened before I was born. Um, and and Jonathan probably gets that because he's from North Carolina. And I think a lot of the other media in the area get it, too, which makes it better because they have kind of that institutional memory of ACC basketball. In addition to whatever team it is that they followed or, or school they went to.
1: Sam, so- you you mentioned it really well when you said journalistic distance. And I think that can go both ways. Right. You know, you have, you know, the beat writer before uh, was Laura Keeley, a, you know, friend of the podcast, uh, was a Duke alum, uh, I believe graduated with you. Right. And, yeah, she's, and think- she's
2: my year. And she was and she was on the she was on the Chronicle uh, sports page, I think, the whole time that we were in school.
1: Yeah. And, and if you did not know that about her, you would not think that she went to Duke when you're talking about her writing. She didn't uh, write with a, a Homer perspective, if you will. She didn't write with a slant. Uh, and was not, you know, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people accused people like Jay Billis and Jay Williams and and Seth Davis of being homers for Duke. No one ever, you know, gave that Hold impression. Up. Who accuses?
2: For... Who accuses Jay Billis of being a homer? Oh, some Duke.
1: people do. No, trust me. Yeah. Yeah. people those who do people, not go to Duke, those people are silly. Those they are silly, are silly. But that's, I mean, that's the impression that they get. Billis, but with Laura, I never got the impression. Like I, I did not know until you informed us that she was a Duke alum because she had that distance. And I think that's very, very important, especially in when you're living in the rivalries, so to speak. I mean, he's right in the thick of everything. He writes for the Raleigh paper talking about Duke basketball and football. That's going to be a very delicate and it's going to be read by UNC fans. Like this is a very delicate balance that anyone in his position would have to, uh, to do. And I, and I, appreciate the fact that he has a unique perspective in the sense that he doesn't really have a dog in a fight he he's a guy who grew up in in the rivalry but not inside the rivalry if that makes sense
0: So this edition of the DBR podcast once again is brought to you by the uh, the fine fellows at Bird Campbell the Bird Campbell law firm and Tucker Bird one of the two Duke roommates who founded Bird Campbell sent us a note after the BC game and I just want to share it with you people really quickly. He points out that this game, the game should be a great learning experience, a great learning lesson for this young group in this positive reinforcement era where young athletes are taught appropriately so to affirm your opponent It had to have been quite a shock for a gym full of full-throated adults to be screaming at the Duke basketball team, calling them overrated, cheering their misses, and flooding the floor when they lost the game. What the Duke guys will learn from this game, he says, is that the intense negative reaction is actually the ultimate sign of respect. Beat Duke and you've done something. Give BC credit. They played great. They deserve to win. And they deserve to lustily cheer Duke's defeat because those cheers only affirm Duke's prominence. So that's the message from Tucker Bird of Bird Campbell. And we remind you once again, if you have legal work in the states of Florida or Texas, reach out to them at birdcampbell.com, B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com. Bird Campbell means business. Gentlemen, we have uh, spent a great deal of time talking about uh, Duke's first loss this season to BC. uh, And the deep, deep irony is that the BC game, the BC loss came just a few days after probably Duke's most impressive offensive performance of the year. Not probably, certainly. (laughs) Duke played the uh, St. Francis Red Flash. And um, St. Francis came into this game saying that they were going to play their regular pace, play with tempo, and try and run up and down the floor. And they did that, but the problem for them was Duke ran a little bit faster than they did. The final score in this game, 124-67. to 124 points for the Blue Devils. They scored 71 points in the first half, one point away from setting a Duke record for points and a half. It was a game full of huge, huge, huge heroes. Most notably, Marquise Bolden. Marquise Bolden had 17 points and 10 rebounds. Dude, he was he was dominant out there at times. It was like he was playing oh against my. me. What? Yeah. Can what? I can
2: I can Please. I interject slightly? Please. Yes. Um, I I know I saw this comment on Twitter somewhere. Was Marquise Bolden just padding his rebounding stats?
0: He may have been. Uh, he, he seemed to be missing a lot of chippies and then grabbing he, his own rebound. He missed
2: he missed a lot of chip a lot of easy shots and was just was it was like he was he was doing the mic and drill or something.
1: Um. <laughs> right well, no, funny I, he, only, it, he only went down as having missed four uh, attempts and i saw the stat line after the game and i was like y'all are outside of your mind because he missed like it seemed like he missed like 20 shots and grabbed 10 rebounds <laughs> and, well, and yeah, just like I, just I, kept I, throwing before, it back up before. there just to just to play with but everybody the, else the, the funny thing is funny the funny thing
0: is, you might look at it and you might go, "He scored 17 points, but with all the easy shots he missed, he could have scored like 25." But that's not the case. He scored 17 points, and that's exactly how many points he should that's have scored. Exactly the number of points he had. All, all those shots out. he missed, he just grabbed the ball back and put it back up again. It was. Right.
2: It's the it's the rebound part of the double double that is probably illegitimate.
0: But I'm with it. I mean, he's struggled. It. he no, struggled. He struggled so much. Come on, give him no, a break.
2: No, I, I and and I do. I, I I I I clown because I because I love. I don't know something like that. He he certainly showed a lot, and I was I was all prepared to be like, oh man, St. Francis game. Let's talk about this, and then BC happened. So, um, but but yeah, a a really impressive showing from Marquise Bolden. I I want to go farther down the bench and Buckmeyer. Talk about you,
0: Mike Buckmeyer. And Here's tell you the first play first of the of game, all, Mike
2: Buckmeyer. not only, not only did he, did he, uh, did he have an and one, but he did it going coast to coast, uh, and that was that was after, awesome. After
1: I mean, Justin Robinson channeled his inner LeBron James and just right. annihilated a <laughs> shot, thing. annihilated. Is the
2: friend of the podcast, friend of the podcast, Justin Robinson. I think the first Duke player of any kind that we had on the show. Is that right?
1: Because I, I think are correct. Was, yes. uh, current player, it yes. During, uh-huh.
2: It was during yeah. that first season that, that we had him on when he had just like signed his his. I don't know what exactly letter his three. agreement was. Right. Letter he intent. Had just, of he had just committed league. to
0: Duke. He had just committed to Duke, and I got to him at at Top Golf San Antonio. He's from That's San right. Antonio. I got to him at Top Golf San Antonio before the Duke Sports Information Department could tell him, "You're not allowed to talk to the media." <laughs>
2: yeah, and. Anyway, so we had him on, and and I'd like to I'd like for us to take credit for his let's call it his breakout performance against St. Francis. Not only did he have five points, not only did he have a three-pointer made, he had one of the most awesome uh chase down blocks. And the chase down block, I don't know if I mentioned this on the last show, because we've had a couple of them this year. Jal Je- Javin had Delorier a kind few. Of really yeah. yeah.
0: That
2: I think the chase down block is my favorite play in basketball because I mean, it's awesome. Everyone gets excited about it, but also because with the right player, and Justin Robinson was not who I expected it to be, but Delorier, and then before him, Miles Plumley, who was awesome at it at Duke, because because you can see it coming, yes. and um, like th- there's there's a moment of anticipation where the, the the one opposing player has the ball on the fast break and is like, "I am going to get a layup," and 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 you know, and it happens to shorter guys because they can't necessarily dunk it confidently. Um, the seeing seeing the, the the defender come out from behind them right before he's about to go jump that that anticipation is like my favorite thing to watch and LeBron James is obviously like the king of that move but Dukes had a couple guys who who can do it well and Robinson like he like cocked his hand back for that block I mean he was he he was <laughs> well, the, thinking about the, the, it and ready for it he had the whole thing set up. like he it couldn't have been teed up better for him that was my play of the game was that was that block and then, the, then Buckmeyer going coast-to-coast coast with the Ant-1.
1: The best part about the, those blocks, those kind of blocks, is that you, you talked about the anticipation. The entire world can see that sort of block coming except for the guy who has the ball. and it's, it, You don't have time to tell him. Oh, no. You don't no, have no. time he to knows. send him an email or send him a text message or be like, yo, see, man, maybe you should come pull back. There was no chance for that dude. To know what's coming until it happens.
2: I actually think that that those guys know it's coming. There's just literally nothing you can do about it. If if you're like if you're six two and not comfortable dunking, and you know that you're gonna have to lay it off the backboard, and and you sense that there's a guy who's six nine who's catching up to you, you're toast. Like nothing good is going to happen to you. (laughs) There is
0: there's no getting away from it. I'll tell you what I think the most significant thing that happened in that St. Francis game. Uh, was Gary Trent Jr. shot well from the perimeter, which is something he hadn't been doing very much, and and it continued against BC. Um, but uh, but to me, I mean, Gary Trent Jr. was four of six from three. I think that and he and he was hitting them early in the game. Like he came out and I think he hit his very first one, and I was like, ah, finally, because Gary Trent Jr. had really been struggling from distance prior to that. Um, uh, uh, to me, that was the thing that was the most important thing that happened in that St. Francis game, the, other than Mike Buckmeyer scoring three points. The,
2: the the other exciting thing about that, that game that I don't know if it resonates with you guys as much as it resonates with me. There was a point where Duke went up forty to fifteen, which is a score I remember seeing in Cameron in two thousand nine, might have been two thousand ten against it was two thousand nine against Maryland when um, sixty to twenty Duke was like. Yeah, when it was sixty to twenty, but it was forty to fifteen earlier, like two minutes before that. Duke just wrapped. It was grievous Vasquez's senior season, and being, as I have mentioned many times, being from Maryland and growing up a Duke fan, there was nothing that gave me more joy than seeing Duke just beat the crap out of out of Maryland. And so, when that score flashed on the screen, I was like, "Good memories, good times, man."
1: Uh, The one thing I took away, or there's a couple things I took away from this game. Uh, one, you know, we talked about how many rebounds we got. We, we almost got as many rebounds as St. Francis had points. We had 61 rebounds. That's got to be some sort of or close to some sort of Duke record. Uh, but the one thing that I, I will point out again, and we talked about BC from the three point line against Boston College, we shot eight for 30, and Boston College shot 15 for 26. Against St. Francis, it was almost the exact opposite. We shot fifteen for twenty-six, and St. Francis was seven for thirty. So that just tells you like what kind of uh, you know momentum that gives a team, uh, especially for us, because like like we mentioned before, St. Francis had maybe two guys in their rotation that were over six eight, and we had five. And when they're sitting there, like they can't come down with any rebounds. They can't. They were getting. We were getting a lot of pressure on the ball, forcing them to take a lot of jumpers. And they were thinking that the one way they can keep, keep in the game was by knocking down some threes because we're not supposed to be a good three-point shooting team. When we go 15 for 26, that's how you end up with a score of 124 to 67 uh, because we just absolutely annihilated them in every facet of the game. Uh, but they were they were clearly outmatched. But it, it, it's weird how we went from that to – the game against boston college it's almost like did we leave uh some of those points uh in cameron uh, on tuesday night uh instead of bringing them to boston college on saturday uh,
0: i'll go out on a limb and say that any game where duke hits 15 three-pointers this season they will win yeah there you go Absolutely. <laughs> i'm out i'm way out on that limb in, in fact i think any game where anyone hits 15 three-pointers you you would have a tough time finding a team that hit hit 15 three-pointers and lost. Maybe I mean go back to the Loyola Marymount days. I'm I'm taking us back in time a while when Loyola when Paul Westhead was at Loyola Marymount and they were uh, they were you know scoring 120 points a game, doing nothing but shooting three pointers. Pretty much in the you know past decade or so, you hit 15 three pointers, you're winning a game as Boston College showed us, and as Duke showed us a few days before that. All right, folks, we're about to wrap it up. Uh, Before we do, we have our player of the week and our parting shots. We'll start with player of the week. uh, Donald, I will go to you first. Who is your player of the
1: week? BC games, St. Francis games. That's our week. Who's your player? You know what? I'm giving it to Justin Robinson because he had one of the illest blocks I've seen uh, from a bench player in a long time. It got me out of my chair, almost made me tackle my TV set. Thankfully, I still have a TV set to watch all these games, but. My energy was at an all-time high because of Justin Robinson. And for that and that alone, he is my player of the week.
0: I like it. I like it. Sam, what about you? Player of the week. The
2: ugliest three-point play you'll ever see. Mike Buckmeyer, uh, my player of
3: the week.
0: <laughs> so I guess it falls to me to do a semi-serious one. I'm going to give you it to Gary Trent to. Uh, No, no. I'm giving it to Gary Trent Jr. That's uh, fair. A he, had, he had a fabulous. He had a fabulous week. He hit 10 3 pointers on the week, um, at, it, it, and uh, you know, with it, it in a week where there was not a lot of great play from from Duke's, um, well, you know, Duke starters. Uh, I give it to Gary Trent Jr. and Javin Delorier would have been my runner-up. Delorier had a really, really good weekend. Uh, there, there is some talk that Delorier may be pushing to move his way into the starting lineup, but I don't know if we're quite there yet, but, uh, he, he played great as well. So gentlemen, we move on now to parting shots. I will go to Sam first, Sam, what you got for me?
2: My parting shot comes in two parts. It's a statement and a question. The statement is happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate as soon as thank we you very much. I'm celebrating here. There you go. Uh, as soon as we're done here, I'll be lighting my candles here by myself, um, which I know sounds kind of sad, but but that's okay. Uh, and then the second half of my parting shot is a question for Jason and also for Donald, but Jason in particular, because I know that this is one of his passions. Jason, will we be discussing The Last Jedi next week on the show?
0: I, I absolutely think we can. I see no reason why not. Uh, next week, Right. You know, it's, it's sort of a slow week for Duke basketball. um, And so uh, we're going to be doing some sort of fun stuff. And I think talking about The Last Jedi would be a wonderful – I've already seen it, as you know. Um, I saw a, a yes. advanced screening of it. Um, by the time folks get this podcast, my bet is a lot of other people will have seen it. I'm not going to go into a review now. We will discuss it next week. But you have reminded me, Sam, we should tell folks that next episode, our episode next week, will be the one – where we uh, we are looking for people to suggest YouTube videos of old basketball highlights and stuff like that, mixtapes, whatever it may be, that Sam should watch. We're trying to educate Sam about the history of basketball. So please write to us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com, dbrpodcast at gmail.com, and let us know what we should show Sam and what we should have Sam react to um, from the history of basketball. Sam, what would you say, what era should people, uh, you know, when, when do we get to the point where you're really conscious of basketball um, so that people can go older than that?
2: I would say that the, the easiest break point is just in 2000. Although I do remember like Michael Jordan's Bulls, there's not a whole lot of other basketball I remember from the 90s. So if it's before 2000 and it doesn't feature Michael Jordan in like winning championships, then then hit us with it i'm also i reserve the right to point out that your basketball heroes weren't as cool as you think they were
0: is that fair oh dude i don't know i'm having some trouble with that but we will <laughs> <gonna> deal with <laughs> that <laughs> next week we'll deal with that on the next podcast donald it's like your I've, turn look, I, uh, go ahead well,
2: uh, no i was just gonna say that I, I i i think i mentioned last time like i've watched the the 1992 uh, elite eight game and i've watched um some of the final four games from around that era. And listen, I know those dudes were awesome, um, but it, it doesn't exactly look like basketball does today, with, with, with some exceptions. Like, like Grand Hill's uh, alley-oop against Kansas is, uh, is pretty ferocious. I like
0: that. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to force you to watch the entire first half of the Duke-North Carolina 7 nothing stall ball game. <laughs> oh, gross.
1: <laughs> Just to make you endure that. Do you have a reel-to-reel? Because uh, if you do, that might what make a- it easier to watch that game. Jason, I'm
2: already I'm already gonna have to watch Duke play Virginia this year. Do you need to do you need to force that that terror on me? Every well, good
1: every good player scouts their opponent, and that would be a good way to scout Virginia.
2: Oh gross.
1: <laughs> I quit. We're done.
2: Donald, <laughs> what's your parting shot?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I have two parting shots, two quick ones. The first one is I, I was able to work it out and I will be going to the quick lane bowl in Detroit on December twenty sixth. Uh, it's All gonna right. be a great time. Uh, so the, the DBR podcast will be represented. Uh, Duke gang was in my hometown and I, I figured I could not miss that opportunity. So for those of you who are going to the game, uh, looking forward to meeting some of you there, uh, we will have a Coney dog or 12, uh, and it'll be a good time. But the second, uh, parting shot that I have, did you guys catch our boy, Chris Collins, friend of the podcast, Chris Collins and his Northwestern Wildcats the other night against Chicago state? No, oh, what happened? Well, if we were talking about you know big big time blowouts, uh, Northwestern in the first half had at at halftime against Chicago State, little in, in, inner city rival. Uh, the score was fifty five to eight, and it was not. I I think the eight is very very very, you know, g- generous con- considering that they probably. Well, it to was eight? fifty-five to eight, and it was like. I think it was 25 to five, like 10 minutes into the game and into being 55 to eight at halftime. Uh, It eventually went on to, to win 96 to 31. Uh, So you're talking about UVA scores. Uh, 31 is, is definitely a score that is, is visible on a a lot of times on uh, a university of Virginia uh, box score. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to point out, shout out to the Wildcats for uh, probably the most egregious, uh, Halftime score so far this year in college basketball: fifty-five to eight uh, over what was an outmatched Chicago State. Also, fun fact: something I learned that game. Chicago State is in the WAC conference, the Western Athletic Conference, like the old conference that had Hawaii and Boise State and those type of teams. Now has Chicago State. That tells you something about the realignment of college basketball has affected everyone, including the Chicago States of the world. Chicago is not in the West. It is in the Midwest, but the West, no, no, it was it's
2: in not the West. In the West. West. It yeah. was once, right? I mean, at, yeah, at some we're going to show videos from consider. the
0: eighteen hundreds now. <laughs> 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 I don't Chicago see, is I don't not see West. Like James, not the, it's James it's
2: the Midwest. Uh, Kansas.
0: <laughs> it's the Midwest. They don't belong in the whack. They belong in the Midwack.
1: There you know, apparently no. is no Midwack. Uh, so <laughs> like, you
2: know that University of Denver, uh, you know, that University of Denver plays, I think it's maybe lacrosse in the Big East. Did you know that? Yes. <laughs> I really? Did know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep.
0: Well, the I'd East like, would have, for the East to include Denver, it has to be really big.
2: I was going to say, folks, I live in Denver. It is not the East. We do. Can we say
0: there is them?
2: a lot? There is an East Denver. It, I mean, it, it's like the city of Aurora. Um, and, and Aurora, also not the East. You have to, you got to go a long way before you get to the East from here.
0: Okay, gentlemen, it's time for my parting shot. Um, I'm going to try and get through this. Uh, so a few days ago, my father died. Uh, he was 87 years old. He was, uh, he had no pain, no, no prolonged illness. He just went to sleep one night and didn't wake up the next morning, which is a pretty great way to go, if you ask me. Um, even, uh, uh, even, even at the age of, of 87, which was too young. Um, and the reason I'm going to talk about him here and the reason I'm going to talk about him now is because uh, he gave me an incredible gift. Uh, and that gift was a, a love of sports. But more than that, it was a love of the fellowship, the camaraderie, the shared emotion and passion that we all have for sports. I'm on this podcast right now because of my father. Um, uh, I grew up as, as I've told people many times in a, uh, UNC basketball home. Um, uh, it was an ACC basketball home, but primarily a UNC basketball home c- because my father went to UNC, his brother, my uncle went to UNC, uh, my grandfather, my, my dad's dad went to UNC. Um, we, uh, I, I, I grew up doing nothing but watching Carolina basketball. Um, and, and then I went to Duke and I converted to the, the right shade of blue, but, um, but my dad had already instilled in me uh, a tremendous love of this game, a love of ACC basketball. Um, I, I vividly, some of my earliest basketball memories are, are connected to my father. At uh, the 1976 Olympics, when Dean Smith went to avenge the United States loss in the 1972 Olympics, Dean Smith was the coach of the team, and... Uh, my father, my grandfather, my uncle uh, were friends with Dean Smith and they went to the Montreal Olympics in 1976. And I vividly remember watching the games of the 1976 Olympics, looking in the stands, trying to see my dad, my uncle, and my grandfather. Um, uh, and so many Hawks games. My dad had Hawks season tickets for forever. And I, I remember watching John Drew uh, and his bank shots and then Dominique Wilkins and Tree Rollins um, and and the other greats on the Atlanta Hawks, and I got all of that from. And I I, I watched those games with my father, um, and uh, even even much later in life, uh, when uh, when he was getting up there and his mind was starting to go, uh, he he still every single night would watch basketball. That was like his big thing. I, just uh, about a week and a half ago, or two weeks ago, he called me because he'd been watching a basketball game and he'd seen a player, he, he, he said he was watching a UNC game and a player from the other team had collapsed by their bench and the guy was, was down and the paramedics had to attend to him and they took him to the hospital. And my dad was telling me about this whole scene. I didn't have the heart to break it to him that it was actually an NC State game. It wasn't a North Carolina game. He thought he was watching the Tar Heels. He was actually watching the Wolfpack. That's what happens when you get to be 87. <laughs> but he was still watching up until the very end, even with his mind starting to go. So uh, that's, that's my parting shot. Thanks, thanks dad, for, for giving this gift to me. And, and I now try, I share it with my sons and out there all over the place. I, I'm betting there's not a single person listening to this podcast who is a huge, huge diehard Duke fan that doesn't say, yeah, I got some of my love of sports from my father. Guys, am, am I right?
1: Absolutely. You know, I I first of all, our condolences continue to be with you. Thank uh, you. and your family. Um but yeah, you know, I learned everything there is to know about sports from my dad. And it, it's I think it's fitting, you know, honestly, like it's rubbed off on you, Jason, cuz we we you know, as everyone out there knows, we kind of coordinate these uh things beforehand uh these episodes and uh I think it was Tuesday where you kind of got on and was like, Hey guys, um, at this point we'd already know, we, we'd already found out about your father. And he was like, Hey guys, uh, are we going to do this podcast or what? Um, and I think that's fitting, you know, that for, for you to, to, to in a way that, that you're, you're paying tribute to your dad this way. And, uh, we, we wanted to give you all the time that you want, that you needed, uh, same with your family. But, uh, again, our hearts are with you and your family. Um, our condolences and, and uh, your dad lives on through you, and he'll be very proud. Thank you. That's, that's really kind. Con- and I, I want to stress, by the way, that it's not
0: um, – the, the reason I wanted to talk about him um, was, was because sports was this great bonding thing. And, uh, and, and I feel like, you know, the three of us have bonded. You know, we, we've, we've been in each other's presence – you know, a few times we've gotten together, but, but uh, I, I bonded with my father and I was able to continue to have a relationship with him throughout his entire life because, you know, one of the reasons for it was sports. It was something that we shared and, and that's just so, so important. Um, having, having things that we share bring us together as a society and as a people um, and, uh, and it's one of the things that makes sports so important to us. Even though it's not important, it really is important. That doesn't make any sense, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So that's going to do it for us here on the DBR podcast, episode number 97. Thanks for sticking with us throughout this entire uh, podcast as we mostly focused on kind of depressing stuff like Duke losing basketball games and... And me losing my dad. <laughs> but we're laughing at the end. That's a good thing. That's the way it should be. We'll be back uh, probably in about a week or so. Duke will play Evansville. And shortly after that game, we'll come on. We'll uh, uh, remember, folks, you need to tell us what you want to have Sam look at from the history of college basketball. Please, please write to us if you have any suggestions, if you have any comments. We can be reached at dbrpodcast, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to leave a review to rate us on iTunes or whatever however other way you're listening to us. All those reviews, all those ratings, they they help us out. They help us with search results, and they uh, help our reputation um, in the podcast community, and, and we do so appreciate it so very, very much. Um, uh, for Sam and Donald, I am Jason Evans. It is now time for the Duke Band to take us home. Thank you.